All right, well, good morning, church. All right, well, what a wonderful time I'm sure uh, you had last weekend. I'm talking about the retreat, your retreat that you had. Um, I'm sure uh, you found it to be a, a good and helpful time sitting under uh, teaching of uh, Pastor Ben Falconer, and hopefully uh, you found it refreshing for you personally, uh, as well as for your community group. And hopefully it hasn't been too quickly forgotten, faded out of your memory because of one of the greatest weeks of our lives as Philadelphians. Amen? What a time to be alive. You realize there are many who have not lived long enough to see this day. Well, how many of you were out at the parade? Oh, actually, not that many of you. Wow. Well, what, a, what, a, what an experience that was. Uh, well, I wish I had, um, I could just spend the next 45 minutes talking about the game, talking about the parade. I could surely fill up all that time, but um, I don't want to possibly be struck down. So let's uh, turn to more important, and truly they are more important matters uh, with our sermon this morning. Afterwards, we can talk all we want about the game and the parade and all that stuff. Now, we're continuing on in our series on the book of Romans, and I know that many of us are in a happy, festive, joyful mood uh, from this past week, and I wish I could speak on a kind of celebratory passage, a passage like Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait for the Lord since 1960 shall renew their strength. They shall be mount up on wings like eagles. But I need to, um, I need to say this, I need to warn you that our passage this morning is, is really weighty. Uh, I'm going to warn you ahead of time, this is going to be on the unavoidably heavier side of the truths that Paul is talking about here. So um, so just want us to prepare our minds and our hearts to receive that. And with that, I think we need to, before we dive into all this, um, go to the Lord and ask for the Holy Spirit to make us tender, humble, and soft to receive his word this morning. So would you join me? Let's bow together and let's pray and then we'll dive into this passage. Our holy God, we now humble ourselves, opening our ears, opening wide our hearts to receive your changing, life-giving word, unchanging, life-giving word that changes us, God. We need your Holy Spirit to take this word and make it more than a time of conveying information, but cutting to our hearts, speaking to us personally, changing us, growing our trust in you, our hope in you, and our love for you. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help me now in my inadequacy and weakness uh, to speak on this passage in a way that you're worthy of. And again, make this more than a time of me standing up here and talking, but may it be the Holy Spirit speaking in and through this text to your people. So have your way now as I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I came across this poll uh, conducted a few years back by YouGov. It's this international market research and data analytics firm which asked people in the U.S., are we a nation of good people? What percentage of people in the U.S. do you think are bad people? According to this poll, 63% of the American public believe that the majority of Americans are good people. Only 25% of the nation believes majority of Americans are bad people. Actually, this is uh, significantly higher than other countries. For instance, the UK, uh, only 12% believe that the majority of people in their country are bad people. So I think maybe Americans are more honest and self-aware. Now, when it comes to their own morality, 51% of Americans say they are morally better than the average American. Uh, 35% they are about as good as the average American. And then 4%, the honest 4%, believe that they are worse than the average American. And by the way, this poll did things like... uh, Asked people by political affiliation. So I found it interesting that Republicans were more likely than Democrats or independents. 59% of Republicans, more than 47% of Democrats and 48% of independents that, that say that they are morally better than, their, than the average American. I present that without comment. Okay, you make of that what you will. But I think the conclusion that we can, concu- we can come to from this poll is that people generally feel good, optimistic about humanity, about human morality, and people feel especially good about their own morality compared to others. Not really surprising, right? Well, I don't think the opinions of this poll differ radically from those of people that Paul was writing to in ancient Rome. And people back then, just like today, thought favorably about people, especially about themselves. And that's why we're going through this letter. This is the most thorough unpacking of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Bible. That's why we're going through That's why it's important for you to learn this as the foundation for your faith and have it for the rest of your life. And that's why... Paul spends the first three chapters. So the last message, Romans 1, this was on diagnosing humanity's fundamental problem. That's what we're going to see today, and this is not going to be the end of it. You're going to see this again next Sunday. Paul spends these first three chapters diagnosing humanity's fundamental problem. Now, I want you to think about this. There's perhaps no worse nightmare for a doctor than misdiagnosing a patient, especially when the condition is life-threatening but treatable. That's why Paul does not hold back exactly what we all need to know about our desperate spiritual condition, how grave it really is. Unless you think you've heard all of this enough already, Paul has no problem beating it into our minds, and our hearts. Why? Because not only does misdiagnosis lead to death, but so does denial. 
You see, a cancer diagnosis may be clear, but a stubborn patient who lives in denial and refuses necessary treatment is surely killing themselves. You know what I've come to really realize firsthand as a pastor is that the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of sin is a truth that people will readily agree with, will assent to in theory and in others. But when it comes to their sin, when it comes to your sin, I'll even admit when it comes to my sin, there's anything but real honest admission and owning of it. And I'm talking about Christians here, let alone unbelievers. And this is why Paul addresses the problem of human sin at great lengths before getting to sin's full remedy. To get us to fully own our problem. Because we don't. So let's allow the teaching of this passage to do that. Now this is a very dense passage. And I'm not going to come close to doing justice to it with this one message. But I think we'll get the main idea. We'll grasp the main message of this chapter by seeing these three points. So this is my outline. We'll look at this passage under these three headings. First, God's universal indictment against the religious and irreligious. Secondly, we'll look at God's universal sentence. And then lastly, we'll look at God's gracious invitation. So first, let's look at God's universal indictment against the religious and irreligious. Now, in our previous passage, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, if you remember, we saw humanity's descent into idolatry, sin, and evil. And in chapter 2 here, Paul is needing to deal with denial. Denial of this diagnosis of humanity from both the religious, moralistic Jews and the irreligious, immoral Gentiles. So let's look at each of these two groups and how Paul addresses each of them. First, the religious Jews. Now I want you to picture this letter, letter of Romans, being read out loud. This is probably what they did back then. So once it was delivered, it was probably read out loud to the congregation, to that church in Rome, made up of both Jews and Gentiles. I want you to imagine... Chapter 1 being read to that church that unpacks, again, humanity's descent, rebelling against God the creator, falling into the false worship of created things, idols, and then the long laundry list there of flagrant sin of all kinds, sexual immorality, murder, inventing all kinds of evils in that list. Now I want you to imagine, how do you think the Jews in that congregation heard and received, and what was going on through their minds as that chapter was being read. Yeah, Paul, you give it to those Gentiles. Yeah, Paul, give it to them. That passage is talking about those immoral, foolish, reckless, godless, filthy pagans. That's not us. We're the people of God. We worship the true God. Now, Paul, knowing their mindset, being one of them, after all, 
is shrewdly setting them up. Because here in our passage, he goes in on them. What do we see in verse 1? Look at your Bible, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, the Jews thought that the line that separates good versus bad, good versus evil, came crossed between them and these lawless pagan Gentiles. That they saw the Gentiles as in a different category, outside of those who are righteous and moral. What Paul is saying here is an absolutely stunning indictment. That if you heard this for the first time, you'd be completely taken aback. What he's saying here is, you Jews are absolutely no different in the exact same category as those pagans that you look down upon. This must have been an absolute shock to them. I mean, didn't they worship and belong to the true God as God's covenant people? Now, there are two main things that distinguish the Jews as God's people from everyone else in this passage. This passage mentions two main things. First, the law, the law of God. And we see that in verses 17 to 24. Right? If you look specifically at 17 to 20, you see how the Jews relied on the law of God, were instructed from the law of God, approved the law of God. You see, unlike the pagans, they had high, very high moral standards, the Ten Commandments and beyond. And they tried to abide by them in their lives. They were entrusted with this law, and they saw themselves, as the passage goes on, as a guide to the blind. We are the light to all those who are in darkness. We're the instructor to the foolish. They saw the law, having the law, as what separated them. And secondly, we see they had the sacred sign of circumcision. Verses 25 to 29. They possessed this outward sign and seal given only to them, setting them apart as God's holy people. So, try to be in their shoes. They have the law. They're a guide to everyone else with the law. They're the only ones set apart with this sacred sign of circumcision. So how, they, how could they be considered no different than these Gentiles? Well, this passage makes clear because of their self-righteous hypocrisy. Their self-righteous hypocrisy. Verses 21 to 23. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, what was that? Back then, it was a common crime to go into all these temples in, in Rome and other cities, which housed expensive articles that could be swiped, that could be sold for a profit, especially those who uh, were poor and weren't making much. So it was very tempting, even for the Jews, to enter into these unholy places of idol worship that they weren't supposed to and help themselves to some nice five-finger discounts 
right? So they can, uh, short, uh, through shortcut, make some money for themselves, right? They weren't immune to that. And that passage ends, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Now, obviously, there were, within the Jews, some who just outright violated, broke God's law. They actually committed adultery. They actually, some of them, murdered. So it was clear-cut. But this passage is even saying more than that. It condemns all the Jews. Because you'll see this more next week in Romans 3. Even though they might not have done it outwardly in their actions, surely in their hearts there was all kinds of violations of God's holy law, breaking his commandments as Jesus taught. So they were all hypocrites, and they all thought just by their outward religion they were better than everyone else. You know, what good is knowing and priding yourself in the law of God, teaching the law to others and not actually obeying it? You know, for those of you who are bosses at your jobs or managers, you have people under you, I mean, maybe there's some way in which you're guilty of that, where you tell all the employees under you to abide by certain standards and rules and laws, and you boss them around order them to do it, that you don't even follow yourself. Well, that's the Jews and their religion. What good is being outwardly circumcised when the substance of what that sign points to, being inwardly circumcised and obedient to God from the heart, if the substance of that sign is absent, what good is that outward sign? So you know what Paul is poignantly telling these Jews and what word we need to hear as well, us church-going folk, is that religion can be an empty thing. Religion can be a deadly thing. Religion can be a condemnable thing. See that? Religion is what can make you feel better about yourself than you really are. Religion can make you feel better than others. Religion can be this facade that deceptively covers up an ugly, self-centered, self-righteous heart within. Such religion, of course, can't save you. In fact, it might be precisely your religiosity. You tending church and being in church that may be blinding you from owning your grave spiritual condition that should always make you desperate for the mercy of God. This is why C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, this, put it this way, that is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church, maybe far nearer to hell than a prostitute. You see, God is calling you to repent not only of your wickedness, not only of your outright disobedience to God's law, but he is calling you to repent of your goodness, of your religion, Well, that's the religious Jews Paul goes after. But in this passage, he doesn't forget the Gentiles either. He addresses them once again. Now, what defense, think about this, what defense could the pagan Gentiles use 
to get off the hook of this indictment of being guilty sinners? Well, surely not by their lifestyle that was clearly described in chapter 1, but they could try to resort to the plea of ignorance. Right? Try to put yourself in the shoes of a, a lawless pagan, a Gentile. Be like, how can we, without having knowledge of the law of God that the Jews were given, how can we be guilty of sin? You know, one of the questions I've been asked time and time again over the years is something along the lines of, how can those people from that remote tribe in Africa who's, who, who have never had the Bible, who's never heard of the Bible, how can they be judged for their lives? How can they, they don't know what is right and wrong if they've never had the Bible. So on what basis can they be judged if they've never had the law of God, if they've never been under God's law? Well, Paul makes it very clear that even for those Gentiles who've never had the Bible, never had scripture, never had the law of God, well, surely there's a clear way to make you accountable. It's by your own judgment of others that condemns you. It's your own judgment of others that condemns you. I want you to think about how much do you judge others? All the time, every day. Think about how instinctive it is to call others out on the wrong that you see, complaining about others' behavior. Right, so I was at the parade on Thursday. It was an amazing day. Wonderful time. But it wasn't all pure fun and joy. I saw some of the ugliness that our city is known for. Right? Saw people trying to bulldoze their way, almost trampling over children to get to a better spot in front of the art museum. One of my good friends who grew up here in Philly but now live up, lives up in New York, he came down for the parade with his wife. And actually, he, his wife got hit by... Uh, a can that was thrown, and she got cut and started bleeding. So they made all that way early in the morning, and they had to leave early. Right? So all day long, mixed with this joy and celebration, was all kinds of judgment and anger and condemnation in my heart. You fools, you idiots, right? messing up this day for all of us. You know what? Everyone does this, no matter what background, no matter what beliefs. Kids, kids don't have to be taught to do this. They do this naturally. What are some of the things they say? Hey, that's not fair. Hey, that's mine. I had it first. Come on, mommy. Come on, dad. You promised. You're lying. It's universally innate. You know, God is a perfectly fair and just God. For anyone who's never had his law, did not know his law, did not have the scriptures, he's not going to judge them at the end of the day by the Bible. You know all God has to do? Judge them by their own judgments of others. Now I want you to think about, let's say that your phone, let's say that your phone secretly recorded all your thoughts and your comments you made about other people all the judgments you made about others, all the criticism you had about other people, things that upset you about others, let's say all those things were recorded. 
And on that day of judgment, when you face God, and let's say you never had the Bible, let's say you never knew God's law, you know, all he'll have to do is what? Play back your phone. Play back all that you thought and said about other people. He's going to be like, I will measure you against your own standards. Let's see how you do against your own law. And surely, are you not guilty of the very things that upsets you about others? Is there anyone in the world that comes even close to measuring up to your own judgments that you make? And that's what verse 12 is getting at. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. You see, all people, even those without knowledge of the word of God, by virtue of being made in God's image, that's humanity, being made in God's image, they carry within them this innate sense of moral law. And you know what's proof of that? Your conscience, your conscience. Everyone's conscience shows that actually there's no such thing as a truly consistent, believing, moral relativist. It's your conscience that tells everything. Why is it that you feel guilty? Because you know deep down inside there is an objective moral law to live by, and we often fail and fall short. That's why we often feel guilty. Or let's say someone calls you out on something. For you married folk, let's say your spouse calls you out on something. How is it that you respond? You respond by saying, oh, that's just your opinion. Or to hell with your standard. No. You start to come up with a list of excuses to justify yourself, to rationalize to show why your behavior in that moment was the exception, why you didn't break what you clearly know deep down inside is right and wrong. You see, this passage says, the law of God is written in our hearts, verses 14 to 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So you see, all people everywhere, no matter what background, no matter what ethnicity, no matter whether you're irreligious didn't believe in God, didn't believe in any of his law, didn't abide by it, or you're religious and you had that high moral standard and try to abide by it. Everyone is equally guilty. The indictment and the verdict is exactly the same. You know what's a big value in our day today? The word that's thrown around most often, equality. Equality this, equality that. Well, you want to know what the biggest equality of all is? You want to know what the ultimate leveler of all humanity is? Is that we are all sinfully, morally bankrupt. That's why Herman Melville, 
in his epic novel, Moby Dick. I don't know if any of you have read all thousand plus pages of it. But if you read it, we'll have come across this famous quote where it says, In heaven, have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. For we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Now that's God's universal indictment against the religious and irreligious. Let's move next to God's universal sentence. Now that the verdict is rendered on all of humanity, what is the sentence? What are we all sentenced to? And the unavoidable emphasis of Paul in this passage is that we are deserving of the eternal wrath of God. Verses 2 and 3, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, all, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Clearly a repeated emphasis in this passage that I cannot avoid talking about. Now, this is a topic when heads start to fall, as some of yours I'm seeing right now are doing. And people start to get red in the face out of embarrassment that we're talking about this. And you know what? You're just sitting there in your seats listening. Do you realize I am the one up here in this setting needing to talk about it. I'll admit there's a part of me that wants to avoid talking about this topic, right? Wants to avoid naming that word hell. But I can't avoid what Paul is teaching here. Now, I, wanna, I want to, in this section, I want to help us not to downplay the doctrine of divine wrath out of fear and embarrassment, or maybe some of us are tempted to reject it altogether. Oh, I don't like that about God. I don't like that about Christianity. But I want us to embrace it as an essential part of the gospel message. You see what Paul said in verse 16? On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. There is no gospel. There is no gospel without talking about the judgment of God. Now, I want you to think about this. When you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, do you get the sense that God's wrath and judgment against sinners, which you can find on pretty much every page of the Bible somewhere, do you get the sense that whenever God's wrath and judgment is mentioned that the Bible speaks of such truth sheepishly, ashamedly, like, oh, I'm sorry to bring this up, but uh, after the Israelites were rescued out of Egypt, uh, the Egyptians somehow find themselves at the bottom of the sea. Let's move on real quickly. Let's talk about the Israelites singing now in worship. No, it's not downplayed. It's not sheepishly talked about. The judgment of God is expressed in the most vivid term, in the strongest language. 
God's judgment is anticipated, hoped for, even celebrated. Now, why is this? You realize that God needs to be wrathful against sin, against sinners, for us to have true hope for the world. For true justice, complete justice to ultimately prevail. You know, it's actually only been rather recently in modern times, just in the last few centuries that and especially in the most affluent and comfortable societies of the West, like ours, where the truth of God's judgment, divine wrath, has been disputed and denied. For most of church history, there was no objection to this truth. And in countries confronted with absolutely brutal evil, who've experienced the brutality of war, of genocide, disastrous poverty and oppression, people tend to appreciate the rightness, even the desirableness of God's wrath. You see, it's really mainly uh, uh, offensive to those with fairly cushy lives like ours. Miroslav Volf, he's a theologian, professor at Yale Divinity School. He's Croatian. He grew up in communist war-torn Yugoslavia, and this is what he had to write, say about coming to grips with God's wrath, God's judgment. He said, the Apostle Paul ascribed to God actions and attitudes that stand in sharp contrast with how such a doting grandparent behaves. He spoke rather freely of God's judgment, condemnation, even of God's wrath. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person, every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. Do you know that period of genocide? Just do the math. 800,000 people, not shot, killed with machetes, hacked to death in 100 days. Perhaps the worst atrocity that we've ever seen. Now, how did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. 
God is wrathful because God is love. Now, perhaps a few weeks ago, you caught this big story of the conviction and sentencing of Larry Nasser. He was a USA Gymnastics team doctor who used this position to sexually abuse more than 150 underage girls over the years, including a number of well-known Olympic gymnasts. And I was able to catch that sentencing hearing live as it was happening. And it was, it was a powerful movement that, powerful moment that moved many to tears, including me. You know, prosecutors who have practiced law for decades said that they had never seen a moment in a courtroom like this. The judge in this case, Rosemary Aquilina, she meted out uncompromising justice on this man who had ravaged and scarred so many precious lives. You know that the sentencing hearing actually lasted seven days because this judge allowed more than 150 women, victims of his, to come forward and share their story in that courtroom in front of the perpetrator because she believed that every one of them had a right for their story to be heard in this man's presence. And this is what this judge had to say in sentencing Nasser to a term of 40 to up to 175 years in prison. She said, inaction is inaction. Silence is indifferent. Justice requires action and a voice. And this is what has happened here in this court. As much as it was my honor and privilege to hear the sister survivors, it is my honor and privilege to sentence you. Because, sir, you do not deserve to walk outside of a prison ever again. And if you watch this, that courtroom erupted in relief and joyful applause. And so many afterwards, if you look on social media, lauded this judge as an absolute hero. Why? Because after these victims have suffered in silence for so long, for so many years, and after all these years that this heinous evil was allowed to persist, you realize the long, hoped-for day of wrath had finally come. Deep down inside, that's what we all long for. But what about all the countless victims who never get justice in this life? What about all the evil, some of which personally we've experienced, that goes unpunished, that makes our worlds feel so futile and meaningless? See, this is why the Bible is unashamedly unashamedly anticipates the day of God's final judgment for the absolute hope of the world so that complete justice at the end will ultimately prevail. Now, as you're hearing this, there is a terrifying reality in all of it. Perhaps you've already gone there in your minds if you're honest about yourself, if you're self-aware. 
And it's that the judgment that we all long to see come upon those like Larry Nasser who perpetuate such evil, do you realize, is the very justice that should fall on all of our heads. Because we are not just victims of sin and evil and justice in this world. We are all, to some degree, maybe not to the level of Larry Nasser, but we are all perpetrators. We're all complicit in sin and evil and injustice. In the aftermath of that case, look who else was condemned. Not only Larry Nasser himself, but all those who stood in silence, did nothing to open up their mouths on behalf of these abused women. All of us are perpetrators. All of us are complicit in this world's evil. And all of us are deserving of God's wrath to fall on our heads. Miroslav Volf continues and he says, once we accept the appropriateness of God's wrath, condemnation, and judgment, there's no way of keeping it out there reserved for others. We have to bring it home as well. I originally resisted the notion of a wrathful God because I dreaded being that wrath's target. I still do. I knew I couldn't just direct God's wrath against others as if it were a weapon I could aim at targets I particularly detested. It's God's wrath, not mine. The wrath of the one and impartial God, lover of all humanity. If I want it to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself when I deserve it. Now let's end with God's gracious invitation. There's just one last thing in this passage left to consider. It's that if people daily vandalize God's beautiful world with sin and injustice and evil, if daily people violate God's life-giving law, then why doesn't God judge the world now? Why hasn't he already done it? Why doesn't the ground just immediately give out and thrust us all out of his presence forever? Do you realize that day after day after day, God lavishes, showers those who betray him, defy him, belittle him, trample on his glory. Daily, he lavishes those people with goodness and kindness. Goodness after goodness, kindness after kindness. He raises the sun up on us. He lavishes us every day with good things. And every moment that this ground does not give way and ushers us out of God's presence is mercy. Now, why does God do that? Why hasn't God yet judged the world? Well, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
realize God's kindness after kindness is goodness after goodness that he showers upon the undeserving world. That's not meant to be a doormat to continually trample upon and take advantage of. That unspeakable kindness and goodness is meant to melt hearts to genuine repentance. See, God is never going to coerce, force anyone to repent with his law, out of fear, out of sheer force. God will never coerce anyone to repent. Why? Because that just makes outwardly religious people driven by fear, like the religious Jews. That's not true religion. That's not true obedience. It's the gospel. It's God's unspeakable invitation, the window open now to full amnesty, full pardon, full forgiveness, the embrace of God. That offers what? But to melt hearts to genuine repentance. That repentance is what leads to true obedience from the heart, from the inside out circumcision inwardly that Paul talks about here. That's what kindness is meant to do. Let me share with you this illustration I came across that illustrates this nicely. Verse 4. I think this is a true story. It's about um, summer camp and a couple of guys uh, working as counselors at this camp. And uh, one of their duties was going around each of the cabins of the students every day and making sure they were clean. And every morning after breakfast, they would award uh, um, the cleanest cabin some kind of prize for that day, whichever cabin, whichever students cleaned their cabin the best. Well, one morning they went on their rounds through the cabins and they came across one of them. Must have been boys. Girls wouldn't have done this. They found that cabin to be completely messy. These guys pulled a prank and did the very opposite of what they were told to do. They messed up their cabin. They tossed all their clothes around. They made the bathroom filthy. And these counselors came upon the scene and they start to well up with rage. These, these fools, they must be punished. Now, one of them calmed down a little bit and thought about it. It's like, what should we do? What should we do to these guys? And he actually, he must be a Christian because he came to the conclusion, you know what? Let's clean up for them. Let's clean up all their mess. Now, if you were there next to him and that's what he told you, what would you have said? Hell no. Hell no. They're going to be punished this morning. You're not going to let them off the hook. If you want to clean it, you clean it up. Well, somehow this guy convinced his friend to join him, and they cleaned up that cabin while everyone was at breakfast, spick and span, folded up all the clothes, cleaned the bathroom everything. After the boys came back from breakfast, they came upon their cabin, and they saw it. The very opposite of how they left it, perfectly clean. And they knew they were in double trouble. 
not just in trouble for the mess they made, but now someone had to clean up their mess. They were in double trouble. So they walked into that award ceremony that morning and their heads bowed, knowing that they were going to get it. And you know what the counselor did? He said, today's prize for this cleanest cabin is awarded to these boys right here. And he gave it the prize to them. What a picture of the gospel. They were forgiven of their disobedience. And even more than that, they were rewarded for the obedience that they did not do themselves, that someone else did on their behalf. That's the doctrine of justification, which we'll get to in Romans 3 in a couple weeks. That's unspeakable kindness. That's grace. Now, how did the boys respond to such unspeakable kindness being shown to them? They immediately went to the counselors and they humbly apologized. And for the rest of that week, they had the cleanest cabin every single morning because of what was done for them. You see, that's kindness leading to true repentance and obedience and change. That's the gospel. Now let me close with going back to that sentencing of Larry Nasser, And I want to read part of this incredible testimony from Rachel Denhollander. And some of you probably saw this video or read about it. And she was one of those victims. She was a former gymnast. And she was given the opportunity in that courtroom to face her abuser. And Rachel is a Christian. And out of her faith in Jesus Christ, she addressed Nasser and testified to the grace and justice of Christ. You know, I, I couldn't have shared the gospel in that setting better myself. And I can't think of a better summary of Romans 2 than what she said in that courtroom. So let me read this for all of us as I close. And this is what she said to this man who abused her on many occasions over the period of many years. You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, 
If you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things religious. As if good things can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires face and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. She said this. You sh- should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. This unbelievably powerful testimony was broadcast that week literally to the entire world. And I pray that God use that testimony, uses that testimony to speak to not only the Larry Nassers of the world, but also all the religious people in the world who have ears to hear and hearts to receive that we are all morally bankrupt. We're all deserving the eternal wrath of God, perfectly just. And yet, for those who would receive it, we are given the very opposite of what we deserve. Unspeakable grace that leads us to true repentance, true religion, true obedience from the heart to God's glory. Let's be changed by this truth. Let's carry and share this truth with others who are in desperate need of it. Let's pray.